Chris Versace here. As you know, we like to share our conversations with management teams, thought leaders, and the like, because it helps inform our investment mosaic, shapes what we might be thinking about for the AAP portfolio ahead. So helping me break down the BDC industry and talk about some opportunities uh, with Trinity Capital is President and Chief Investment Officer, Kyle Brown. Kyle, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, happy to do it. Happy to do it. And and I just want to start this off, Kyle, because I, I don't necessarily know the experience of the AAP membership when it comes to BDCs. I'll I'll cop right away that I know what REITs are, right? But when it comes to BDCs, I'm kind of a babe in the woods. Can you can you kind of set the tone for us and help us understand what a BDC is? Sure, sure. Actually, if you're familiar with REITs, then you're pretty familiar with a BDC in that uh, they're income vehicles, uh, investors typically invest in them because they want uh, and they're looking for a dividend and some yield on their investment. Um, the underlying assets are different. Of course, uh, one is investment into real estate. One is an investment to businesses and growth stage businesses typically. So uh, we are as a BDC a business development corporation required to distribute 90 plus percent of our earnings annually. And, and typically that's closer to 98 percent. And so uh, you would invest in the BDC because you're interested in typically you're interested in uh, the dividend yield that uh, the loans uh, that those business development corporations issue generate a lot of income, which flows right to you without the double taxation uh, that corporations would typically have. So it's a flow through entity. You get taxed at whatever uh, tax rate uh, that you're, you know, uh, that you would you'd be taxed at. Got it. So I, I have to think that, you know, uh, during 2022, that when there were some concerns about the direction of the economy, the direction of the marketplace, uh, you guys, if I remember, had a had a, let's say, double digit dividend yield somewhere in the mid teens, if I remember correctly. I have to think that that's rather enticing. But there's also some concern from investors that when we see such lofty dividend yields, that it sometimes it could be uh, a great opportunity. Other times it can kind of be a warning sign as well. How do you reconcile that uh, when people ask you about that? So, I mean, I, I would love for the dividend yield to be uh, lower. And I think that because we're grossly undervalued, you see it higher right now. Uh, I think time, you know, we're we're finishing up our third year here in January as a public reporting company. We've been uh, trading on the NASDAQ now for almost two years. I think there is a season for any company that goes public, particularly a finance company, where they need to, uh, you know, they need a season. The market needs to understand and see them perform over and over again, quarter after quarter. And so I think we have a little bit of that going for us right now. Um, yeah, but but listen, I think we're I think we're grossly undervalued, which is why our dividend yield is where it's at. Mm -hmm. uh, we, as an internally managed BDC, which is a differentiator for us, most BDCs out there, business development corporations, they're really kind of, they're funds, they're private, they're public funds. Um, you know, the majority of them are, they're managed by a management company. And there's really no, you know, the incentive for most BDCs is to just be consistent with the dividend, you know. Um, we're a little bit different. We're an internally managed BDC. There's only three, I think there might be four of us out there. Um, we're one balance sheet company. I own the same stock as my shareholders. Uh, we're really focused on a consistent dividend, but we're incentivized to build the company to focus on ROE. So we're very different than the majority of BDCs out there. We're, we're out there telling that story. I think over time, uh, you know, we're 10 quarters back to back of increased mm -hmm. uh, income and dividend growth. And in time, the market's going to see that. But 
Um, I, I wouldn't associate our yields to um, taking too much risk. We've got a 2% historic default rate going back to 2008 when we were a private fund manager. And so we've got a long history of proving um, this business model out. Now, in the public markets, we're still a little bit new. So, okay. but okay. I, I, yeah. So two questions there. You, you said that you're internally managed. And uh, when I introduced you correctly as the president and CIO, I take it that internal management team is under your purview. Correct, correct. Yeah, we were a, uh, we were a private fund manager going back to 2008. We decided to consolidate those funds into, a, into one company and take it public. We wanted to access the capital markets and really grow the business. There's a huge opportunity in what we do. And and to and it's kind of segue into what we do, which is we lend money uh, and we provide really everything other than what these companies need uh, in the form of debt, equipment financing, ABL type financing, everything other than what the banks provide. We're that non-bank solution for growth stage companies, kind of loosely defined as companies growing at a 50 plus percent annual growth rate, institutionally supported. So they've got institutional equity backers to them. Uh, they're growing rapidly. They're looking for some less dilutive capital to complement the equity they've already raised to help them achieve milestones and get to another fundraise or profitability or an IPO or an M&A. And so we really fit a really interesting little niche, which is less dilutive capital uh, coming in typically alongside significant amount of equity uh, to help the company grow. Uh, and and so we kind of that's why we say growth stage. It's just loosely defined as you know 50 plus percent annual growth rates growing rapidly and have milestones that we help them achieve moving on to more and more bankable type solution in the future is it fair to say just based on your loose description that part of what you do might be bridge financing for some of these companies um yeah you could you could define it as bridge financing um a lot of these companies could get bank financing your typical uh, traditional kind of bank financing but maybe just not quite enough, or they just want to raise a little bit less equity, and we fill that we fill that gap. And so, yeah, we are bridging them from one round to another, or um, you know, to help them achieve some milestones so that they can reach you know head towards that IPO or an M and A type event. Okay, and you know, we discussed the differences between REITs and BDCs. You know, there are a lot of different flavors of REITs out there. Some focused in very specific areas. What does that mean for your, you know, uh, the target market for your customers, these these growth companies? Is it particular niches or sectors? Yeah, you do mean the companies we invest in? Yes. Yeah. So um, really kind of industry agnostic. Um, you know, we have a couple uh, hurdles that companies have to get over uh, and underwriting um, that they have to pass through to get to the bottom uh, of our funnel. And that's one is institutional support. We look at that as a really important factor. And, and institutional support, we, what we mean is really funds, uh, private, you know, uh, uh, professional managers of capital, typically $250 million funds or larger, typically billion plus, honestly. And those funds need to have been raised within the last couple of years so that they have the availability of dry powder to support our companies on an ongoing basis in the event they need additional capital. So that's one big, that's one big hurdle. Uh, the other one is growth. We want to see that even in a market like this one where there's, you know, there's headwinds, uh, that these companies have figured out a way to grow. And so if they're growing and the unit economics really makes sense and they have levers to control their, their burn rate uh, and kind of get into profitability if they need to, then 
um, you know, that's that's a really interesting opportunity for us. We also want to make sure they have adequate runway. Yeah, so we, we think about that as two plus years of runway. We think that's really important right now. You know, companies that raise it maybe a higher valuation, uh, they're going to be going out if they're raising equity right now. Uh, they're going to be raising a dilutive, you know, typically it's going to be a dilutive round. And so we like seeing adequate runway to get further down the road and build their valuation heading towards that next fundraise. So really kind of industry agnostic, the things we try to avoid are companies that have government subsidies who really don't have business models that stand up on their own two feet. So we really try to stay away from government subsidies. Um, and, you know, um, uh, we have more recently um, gotten in, into life sciences a bit more, but really kind of, you know, we're trying to take execution risk. And so we're not, you know, we're trying, we, we try to stay away from FDA type approval risk. Um, we want to take execution risk. We want to look at the management team, we want to look at the plan that they have in front of them, the investors and, and the capitalization structure, and we want to believe that they have the ability to execute that plan and build that valuation. So execution risk is, is really what we're honed in on. Got it. And, and when you the, your second point was growth, um, how are you defining that? Is that revenue growth, profit growth, cash flow growth, a combination of these metrics? It's definitely a combination of the metrics. Um, every deal that we do it goes through you know the, the exact same filter. Um, you know, we're really honing in on that gross profit margin. We want to make sure this business has the ability um, to continue growing and be profitable, right? Uh, and we want to know that this company can turn the corner at some point. So most of our companies, they're growing so rapidly that they, it makes sense for them to spend and burn some cash to continue growing. Um, but we want to make sure they have the levers in place to turn that corner and, and service their debt if they need to do that. And so... You know, yes, revenue growth, but not at the expense of that bottom line. We want to make sure they have the ability, uh, and and we want to make sure that they, um, you know, they they've proven out all technology risk as well. We don't want to take tech risk. There are there are deals we do where we know we're taking technology risk, and we've got engineers and technology experts in house that can really underwrite that technology at a granular level, and who can make sense of the value of that IP. But for the most part, you know, we're looking at the business model. Does it make, do the economics make sense? And, and are we taking technology risk? And that's, it's one of the huge barriers of entry, honestly, into our space. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Got it. So, so it would seem that in order to grow your business, you really need, you know, two things. You need incremental access to capital to put to work, but you need companies that, you know, you, that clear these hurdles that you can indeed invest in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the opportunity set's pretty massive. Um, you know, we are, um, some of our peers are deploying multiples of the amount of capital that we are. And so actually the industry itself, venture debt is one product that we provide. And so you want to talk about differentiators between us and others. So venture debt is one thing we do. Uh, and it is one of our, um, it's one of our, our larger products, um, something we focus on. Uh, equipment financing is something we do that uh, differentiates us from other people. So we're talking about mission critical assets that we provide in advance against, uh, but same underwriting, same growth stage kind of sector. Um, and uh, ABL, you know, advances against assets that are held by typically fintech companies and SPVs. We're providing advances against those assets. And so our, you know, our product set is one thing that differentiates us uh, from us and our peers. Um, and then really the structure. So you, that's how we, you know, the opportunity to grow and, and deploy more capital is there. The opportunity for us to grow the business, it, it, you said it, it depends on raising more capital. And so right. this, this is a way that, and, and this, is, this is really important, one of the differentiators for us, being an internally managed BDC that focuses on ROE, 
we're not going to go out and just raise equity uh, because we want to lend more money. That doesn't make sense. It would be dilutive to do that, right? Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we continue to grow the BDC in a way that's 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 really not dilutive to investors, and a way that's you know that additional capital is accretive to investors. And so, you can think of us um, as this you know uh, as a BDC that yes, we'll continue growing the balance sheet over time and maximizing our returns at the BDC level. And as we scale, there's some efficiencies in there, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, our, our expense ratios will come down. The, the cost of our debt will be able to bring that down. So there's there's actually a lot of efficiencies just within the BDC itself that we still have yet to hit. And I think there's a lot of growth uh, opportunity there. But then our off-balance sheet activity is going to be really important. So, um, you know, one of the things we've done even recently, we just announced it. Uh, we did our first off-balance sheet uh, joint venture where we have raised uh, 150 million of equity from a partner uh, where we are managing that capital and earning fees off that capital will leverage that capital. It provides us with a new way to generate income, which will flow 100% of that uh, of that fee income will flow to our BDC shareholders to generate outsized returns right above and beyond what the BDC itself can generate. And you can think about, you know, investors should think about over time all that income coming into the business that will continue to drive up our earnings per share right Got it. that's really that's really step one we we also this is all public as well we we registered with the SEC for uh, exemptive relief to manage our own RIA we did that 13 months ago um, we just recently finally got uh, approval for that we're in the middle of I mean actually I think today or tomorrow is the last day of a uh, public uh, the comments um, uh, window, and once you know, I once that's through, I believe we'll be issued that RIA and approval for that RIA, and it gives us the ability to raise funds to help us continue to deploy capital and and rate and build the BDC um, uh, at a pace that really makes sense. Where again, we can raise capital when it's accretive to investors. So the funds that we manage in that RIA, all of the fee income and carry, it's 100% owned by our BDC shareholders. That RIA, and so all of that, fun, all of those funds will flow to the BDC, and again, continue to drive up our earnings. So, you think about how we build this over time. You have this combination of on-balance sheet growth as well as off-balance sheet growth to the benefit of our shareholders. And so, we intend to be a really great, consistent dividend play. Yes, but we are also focused on ROE, and so we are a growth story as well. And that is a big, huge differentiator between us and really every other BDC out there. So so when we sit here over the last, you know, 12 months and we see the Fed doing what they're doing, you know, raising interest rates, uh, borrowing costs going higher, that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to slow down for you based on what you just described. No. So for most BDCs, I think that rising rate environments, some of, some of them are going to have a difficult time with this. Uh, because, you know, middle market uh, BDC investors, uh, they are lending money to companies that are, I would say, highly leveraged, right? They have a high loan to value, uh, enterprise value, which is the nature of kind of middle market companies. Um, our world is a little bit different. Um, our companies are primarily, uh, they have lower leverage uh, compared to the valuation of their company. And so our companies have less leverage. And so the impact to, to our borrower with rates going up because our rates are floating. So that impact really mm -hmm. flows to our borrowers. Even though rates have increased significantly, our companies are, are are really less leveraged on the whole. And so the incremental payments, it doesn't affect 
it does it affects the bottom line sure but it doesn't affect them in such a way where where it's going to drive them out of business right or uh, it's going to be such a pain point where they can't handle it. And the truth is, if they need additional capital, they have equity investors there to support them. So right. for us, for us at the B, for our shareholders, we have seen the raising rate environment be something that's beneficial because half of our debt at the corporate level is fixed, and so and then half is floating. And so we, when rates go up, we actually see a pretty, we see more uh, profit uh, on the bottom line. So that's, the raising rate environment has been good for us. Well, I, I imagine, too, though, that the raising rate environment forces you guys to sharpen the pencil, so to speak, and assess. And as you're assessing potential candidates, you're factoring these rates into your decision making process, re really kind of stress testing the business of, of a potential um, client. Again, our, our debt service payments to our borrowers is not the is not the biggest cost. For our borrowers and it does it's it's not the biggest factor frankly we've never been the lowest cost in town and, and our borrowers um you know the the cost of their debt service payments is, is it's it's it means something but it's not it's really not their biggest expense no I, I in this environment for us dealing in the private equity and venture capital space the, the main thing that we focus in on is the investor syndicates and you know, we are seeing incredible deal flow right now because there is a ton of liquidity out there. There's a ton of dry powder out there, but that capital is looking for um, lower valuations and it's being careful and it's being and it's being patient. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of deals get done, um, but they're getting done at lower valuations. And so for us, as we look at new deals, it's can this company get funded? Can they continue to get funded? Um, is it at the right valuation? Right. Um, we're we're having less issues uh, around kind of a rate environment and more focus on uh, does this company have adequate runway and do they have investors that can continue to support them and can we confirm that that dry powder is there i mean that's that's huge for us we focus in on it uh companies cannot get funded by trinity unless we know the answers to those what and i think you said earlier it's two years of dry powder right or two years of runway two years of runway. yeah that's just kind of a that's a that's kind of a minimum threshold we're looking for for companies right now uh, we want to make sure when we fund them they've got two plus years of of runway okay okay based and on us on the on on sensitized basis actually okay so okay i think the company might think they have a little bit longer runway <laughs> well that's uh yes 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 i i've run into no shortage of public companies who think they're fine with their cash i would beg to differ um Okay, so so the deal flow you kind of said it sounds like you have a lot of relationships in in the funds arena, VCs, private equity. Fair to say, so you're kind of seeing the the uh, who's who, the cream of the crop, those sort of deals, correct? Yeah, so we we own the pipeline. We're we're not uh, out there buying some you know pieces of syndicated deals. Um, we are working directly with each of our companies. Uh, we're for, we are referred in to each of these deals by. Uh, either the uh, board members, the uh, venture capitalists, uh, uh, partners, managing partners, uh, the private equity groups, um, or we're getting referred in um, by the the banks, the banks who bank these companies, uh, the Silicon Valley banks, bridge banks in the world, um, or they're coming directly to us. So we really kind of have a three you know three prong approach. Um, we have a great brand and reputation. We are seeing significant deal flow, um, and our referral sources are the top investors in the world. Uh, uh, kind of defined as, you know, size of fund, success of fund, uh, and we're honed in on making sure that we're only working with 
private equity and venture capital groups that that uh, have the availability of dry powder to support their companies on an ongoing basis. It's a, it's a big part of our underwriting. Okay, okay. And I wanted to get back to um, investors because obviously that that's the, the audience for this conversation. Um, you talked about the dividend. You talked about how you've typically, you know, to be a BDC, you've got to pay out at least 90%. More typically, you guys, I think you said are 98%. What you didn't say, and I'm sure you didn't mean to leave this out, is that you guys reevaluate the dividend every quarter. Right. Right. So right. it's it, it, you're not like a traditional company where you might increase the dividend, you know, once a year. Sometimes, you know, uh, companies have special dividends, that sort of thing. But typically, most companies are pretty linear in their dividend policy. That's not the case here. No. So you you can look at our, uh, you know, um, our dividend and our, our increase to dividend over time. I, I think we're 10 straight quarters of dividend increase. Um, our goal is to continue to increase the dividend, generate new income, more income. Um, and generate outsized returns so that we can continue to drive up that dividend over time. That's what we're trying to do. Um, that's why you've seen with, you know, the stock market the way it's been, and, and really we've been dragged down with a lot of the NASDAQ. Why you've seen our yield continue to go up? That's because we continue to provide outsized returns and we increase the dividend accordingly. And okay. that's what we've done in the past. You know, um, what we do in the future, uh, you know, we got we got to decide on that, but that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. Have you guys shared any uh, multi-year dividend forecasts? I know some companies are out there and they say, hey, we we strive to grow the dividend, you know, seven to nine percent, you know, each year over the next X, X number of years. Have you guys done anything like that? We've not provided forward-looking guidance, but you can look back and see that, that those numbers you just said are actually line up exactly with what we've done. So I did my so I did my math right. You did your math right, um, <laughs> and that's what we've done. Um, and then, if you look at what we're doing off balance sheet with the joint venture managing other people's capital, as well as the RIA, which gives us the ability to raise significant amount of capital in, in a fund structure, you can see that we're building the basis uh, to generate new and growing income, which would essentially flow to the BDC and give us the ability to continue to increase that dividend over time. And that's, that is, we're putting the building blocks in place. We've been, we've, we went out and sold this uh, to investors three years ago and we're doing exactly what we said we're gonna do. Okay, so so just just sticking with the, the investor framework here, uh, dividends are one thing, but you guys also report every quarter your net asset value per share. And I think that was around 1375, 74, exiting yep. the September quarter. Um, What's, you know, in your conversations with institutional investors and others, what, what's the right way for people to be thinking about that net asset value per share? Typically, the shares trade at, not not you, just generally speaking, the shares tend to trade in line with the NAV, a slight premium, slight discount, or does that depend on where we are in the cycle? So, you know, internally managed BDCs typically trade at a premium to NAV. We have traded as much as 100, almost 120 to NAV. Um, you know, my opinion is that's where we should that's where we should be trading. And uh, I think, you know, over time we'll see we'll see it grow back to that, I would hope. Um, you know, the NAV number, we have third party valuations. Um, each asset is valued annually uh, thereabouts. I think yeah, it is every every asset's valued annually. Uh, and so, you know, we have a process internally where we we mark to market and then we have a third party that does it as well. So it is um, you know, it's an in-depth process uh, and investors typically trust that number. So, um, 
but it's something we focus on and we do have to keep it. We have to update it quarterly. So, um, you know, we're trading at a discount to NAV right now, which is why you see the outsized dividend yield. Right. Right. Okay. 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 So it, it sounds as if that if you guys execute, and I'm not saying that to say that you won't, I think you will, if you can continue to, you know, find quality companies, put the capital to work, it would stand to reason that the NAV would continue to grow. And then that as that happens, the valuation, my thinking, not your thinking, my thinking, is you would grow into that uh, premium and therefore drive a higher stock price. Dividend yield comes down, even though you're still growing the dividend. Is that is that kind of the framework? Yeah, you got it. Um, I think you can look to, you know, our institutional investor base, which is, you know, which is strong and see that, uh, you know, they're, they have continued to hold and even increase their positions um, because they probably believe that story just as you laid it out. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I do have another question and that this is a little different. It's not necessarily on Trinity per se. This is more Kyle specific. When, when I was looking at your background, Kyle, I noticed that um, you have a rich history in the private company arena, not the public company arena, but you became president CIO in 2019. How, what, what have you found about being in the public company limelight, if you will? What, what was it, was it all you thought it would be? Were there particular challenges you didn't expect? Yeah, so this is my 20th year in finance. Um, I was a private fund manager prior to, and uh, you know, I'd say there's a couple things that uh, are similar. Um, if you do what you say you're going to do over a long people, period of time, people trust you. And so uh, that has carried over quite well. And, um, you know, I think we're earning that trust and that respect from, you know, public public equity investors. Um, you know, we the, the, the one thing the one thing I would say is I love how fair uh, the public markets are. Until they're not there, <laughs> they. So, uh, I, I say it a little differently. The the public <laughs> the the public markets give everybody a nice slice of humble pie right when they don't want it. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you know, and and I would say you know we fund private companies that are backed with equity from private companies. There really there really isn't a lot of correlation to the stock market. And as a as a as a private fund manager, you know, prior to this, that made all the sense in the world. We now have a stock that's correlated to the public stock market, mm -hmm. even if our business model isn't. So right. that is that's been really interesting, and something we've had to figure out. And I think what you see right now is really a reflection of that, where Nasdaq drops, uh, we get sucked down with it, um, and then you look at the earnings and you look at the you know the results and you go, well that doesn't add up. And that's because right. we have right. we have a business model that's not necessarily correlated to the stock market, yet our stock is. Well, you know what I part of it, and this is my my thinking as I was getting ready to talk to you, you know, there's a lot of concerns about the higher rate environment. There's a lot of concerns about the direction of the economy, layoffs. So some of my questions and concerns were along the lines of, you know, and we touched on them, um, borrowing costs, what's that mean going forward? What's the target pool for you to put, uh, you know, capital to work? Um, you know, and, you know, the, the only other question would be, has, have you seen any slowdown in deal flow? And not not to put words in your mouth, but I, I think you've answered all three of those questions. Yeah. So, I mean, deal flow is at an all-time high. Um, if you think about why, you know, these, these companies raised capital at a higher valuation in the last two, three years, and they're looking for less dilutive capital. Even the ones that are doing great, we're seeing incredible companies that we might not have been able to lend for because a bank would do it. And they're coming to us um, because we're going to help them beef up that balance sheet and get further down the road. So 
actually, this environment's a better time for us. Um, when rates are incredibly low and the money's flowing, that's a more difficult time for us. Interesting. Um, okay. Companies, companies have access to a lot more capital. So this is what we've been waiting for. Um, it's why we're getting aggressive with the joint venture, with some off-balance sheet. We want to make sure we can capitalize on investments during this time uh, because, you know, it's the logic could, could serve that, you know, with decreased valuations, there could be outsized returns with the investments you make today. And within our own portfolio, when companies need adjustments to their interest only period or changes or how, you know, we're trading that with a lower valuation. And so on our warrants. And so there could be some really interesting outside return. If you look back historically, come investments made kind of after 2000, after 2008, even investments made, you know, right during and after the pandemic have led to outsized returns. And so, you know, if history repeats itself, and I think it probably will, um, this could be a really interesting time to be investing money in our space. Excellent. Excellent. Um, biggest risk, biggest worry that, that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> our world depends on venture capital and private equity flowing. And, uh, you know, if that if that went away, there'd be a lot of great companies that didn't have access to capital. And with capital markets shut down, you know, where, where are they going to go? Um, that's one thing I think about now. Again, the market has crashed. We, you know, we were running this business in 2008. We got to see it. What happened? We, we saw what happened during the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the truth is that there is always equity capital there to take advantage of. You know, a market. Mm-hmm. And since what we do is provide secure debt um, with some upside potential via warrants, right? Um, our rate and our fees, our yields that you're, you know, you can see there are kind of mid-teens. That's not dependent upon on equity upside and warrants. It's actually much higher if you think about it from that sense. Um, and so we don't necessarily care what happens. I w- I'm careful how I say it. Um, it doesn't impact our return so much with companies getting revalued because we are a lender based in our, in our our rate and our fees make up the bulk of our return. And so you know it's you know that that risk is mitigated a bit because uh, we're a secured lender. Uh, we have significant assets in the IP sometimes in the equipment itself and the liquidation value. Um, so we have some mitigators there that make a lot of sense, but that's one thing I think about. But uh, historically, venture capital and e- private equity has always been there, even after a big crash, uh, to continue supporting innovation. And we think technology is a great place to be investing, and that's what we're focused on. Excellent, excellent. Well, Kyle, you know, you've been um, very generous with your time today. Before we get out of here, I just wanted to know, is there anything that we didn't cover that we should? Um, Nope. I would just reiterate for your listeners, we are very different uh, than other BDCs and as an internally managed BDC that is focused on ROE, return on equity for investors, and a a very stable, consistent dividend. Uh, That's what we're trying to build here. I think the proof's in the pudding. Uh, Continue to watch us. Uh, I hope that uh, your listeners uh, can become shareholders. Well, we will see what we can do about that. Um, All right. Well, hey, Kyle uh, Brown, President CIO of Trinity Capital, thank you for joining me. And in the notes for the show, we'll be sure to have links to the investor relations page and and all that good stuff that you guys have. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Sure thing. All right.